0: Before we get to uh, some of your papers, before we get into chapter 5, so we begin here, uh, let's uh, just hit on a couple of points of addendum 4B. And at this point, JB, you can stop playing solid there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now... I don't think any of I don't think any of you realize how uh, sort of revolutionary it was the thought of the transition between uh, Plato and Aristotle with this business. How do you know that something is an apple? Now, if we took, um, uh, you know, if we took any American today, showed him an apple and said, "How do you know that that's an apple?" The universal response is going to be because you've seen apples before, had experience, or somebody told you. But in no way would a Platonist think that. Anyone who had Platonic philosophy as his background would say because you are able to intuit perfect appleness or whatever in the realm of the ideas. So there is a An intuited knowledge of the eternal forms of perfect apple, apple appleness, the relations that apple has. And that is intuited by us. And so we know. In other words, you could say this this would probably be a better way to put it. In a Platonic view, you don't really learn. You recognize. And this is what Socrates claimed in the Platonic Dialogues, is that he said he didn't teach anybody anything. All he did was allow them, facilitate for them, the uncovering of the knowledge they already had. Now, all of that sounds silly when you use apple it sounds a lot less silly when you start doing moral things as I mentioned in the addendum, or even aesthetic things like beauty perfect proportion that sort of stuff but if you have right and wrong you shall not murder now see then we're much more inclined to say that there's a kind of an innate knowledge of that sort of stuff in the Platonic system that innate knowledge extended to everything. And so you didn't really learn justice. You rediscovered it or allowed it to be uncovered so that you recognize. I mean, I think that's really a good word to use. You kind of recognized it. And so, as I say, Socrates claimed he never really taught anybody anything. He was just a, being a medium by which people could recognize what they already knew. So that fight... Now, with Aristotle, that changes. With Aristotle, you get the experiential basis. Aristotle is the foundation of science as we know it, of investigation, of actually looking at things to find out. Aristotle did have some concept of the forms and stuff, but it was sort of inherent in the things you were looking at. And you were able to discover things. So this this is huge. Um, the difference between Platonic and Aristotelian thought, and uh, this goes down through the Middle Ages. And you'll hear this in other classes. The difference between realism and nominalism, and in realistic. Realism, it's not what you think. It's sort of the other way around. That's Platonic. That is, that there is a real existence of forms outside of you. <clears throat> and things, when you see something, it really is what it is because it corresponds. In nominalism, I give names to things and it's like we would say, it's conventionalized. Nominalism is about conventionalized understanding. There is no conventionalized understanding in Platonism. Now all of this relates to language, as I said, because is there some relationship between language and thinking? Does our language reflect our thoughts, our thought patterns? Do different cultures have different thought patterns as are uh, reflected in the languages that they speak? Now if you'll take a look at addendum 4B in the book, and for the guests maybe somebody could just share a book with them here, I would like you to take a look at one of the important resources here. You should know about this book. It is the one by Thorleaf Bowman, page 115, Hebrew Thought Compared with Greek. It is that book that laid out in a very um, stark way the notion that Hebrew and Greek people thought differently as evidenced by the structure of their language. This was essentially destroyed by another significant book, the one right above it on the bibliography, James Barr, The Semantics of Biblical Language that particular Oxford book from 1961 actually was a landmark work in the history of linguistics and biblical studies to bring into the discipline what we would say would be contemporary linguistic theory so this was the book that started to go after etymology and from chapter uh, five illegitimate totality transfer and all that kind of stuff. So those were two extremely significant books in terms of the history of this kind of uh, issue. Now, that little addendum 4b is very few pages. In actual fact, It's a little over two pages of text. It took me over a month to write that because I had to do work on thought and language, theory of language, this whole business of, uh, uh, oh, in that middle paragraph on page 117, uh, about um, uh, structures experiential realist position embodied conceptual structures and all that kind of stuff by the way that business let me put this up here uh, in that paragraph you'll notice uh, you'll notice in what's displayed here how I have the word music in the side here where why we appreciate certain kinds of music and others is harder to appreciate is related to this idea of Lakoff that there are conceptual structures are embodied that is arising from and tied to our bodily experiences of a real world outside of us they arise in this way because bodily experiences give rise to preconceptual gestalt like structures which are the foundation for conceptual thinking and are themselves meaningful now this is similar there was an interesting article published a while back on atonal music. This is from uh, uh, this is from uh, two thousand and four, uh, and this particular article by Philip Ball says repetition of notes in music create semantic meaning, and his theory is that the problem with atonal music is. Uh, No, let's put it the other way. With tonal music before Schoenberg, that you can predict the pattern of notes once you hear some of the music, you know, you can kind of flow with it and see where it might be going. And this has a certain satisfaction, I would say, on kind of a preconceptual level. That's the point I'm making here. Whereas at tonal music is with Schoenberg and beyond is not like that and you are not going to be able to predict what note is coming next because 12 notes will be repeated before the uh, will have to be given before another note is repeated, and you don't know how this is going to go. So, uh, there, this argument of what's kind of innate, or if it's not innate, there's almost preconceptual. Um, related to our early experience kind of thing. All these are very, very key issues for us. Let's take a look at that bibliography once more. And there's another title that is extremely important for you to know. And that is the last one. And so this is a title on page 116, Benjamin Lee Wharf, Language, Thought, and Reality. Generally, with another guy named Sapir, this is generally called the Sapir Wharf Theory. This is very important and it's related to Thorleaf Bowman. The idea is that language is like railroad tracks, that basically determines. What you perceive and what you can think. And thus, it's, it's kind of the flip side in a way of the Thorleaf Bowman position. So rather than saying that language reflects the thinking pattern, this is saying that language actually determines the thinking pattern. Now, this, they did, uh, these guys did work with like the Zunyi and Pueblo Indians and stuff like that. And, you know, they would have things like, in this language, there's no future tense, and the people don't have an idea of the future that's like ours, and you know, stuff like that. This is very influential. So you, you, have, you have two kinds of things. You have the Bowman theory. Which is really that language reflects the thinking, and you have the Sapir Wharf, which says that language sort of determines the thinking. I think both of these are wrong. Now, essentially, what's probably right is that language facilitates thinking, but it doesn't determine it hey if it determined it for Pete's sake you could never have a new thought or if it determined it you could never really translate from one language to another So, as an example of this thing about facilitating Let's take a look at the following thing. It's an interesting article that was published recently in a publication in England called The New Scientist. This comes from January of 08. Trapped in a worldview. Something is getting in the way of physics' much vaunted grand unified theory. David Peet wonders if it's got anything to do with an unusual meeting in 92 when some Native American elders and a group of physicists sat down and talked about language. Now what he says in this article is that, going back to quantum physics, When Heisenberg came up with his uncertainty principle, namely that you cannot determine the location and the momentum of a particle simultaneously. If you do one, you'll disturb the other. His theory, as first articulated, sounded like this there are packets of energy. Units going along. And if you try to determine its momentum, you're using some kind of detecting of device, and you kind of bump it like that as you detect it, and therefore you don't know where its location is. He, he made it sound like that. That's the way most people understand the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. That your observation affects anything because you're kind of like bumping into it and doing something to it. Interestingly enough, Niels Bohr, who is the great Niels Bohr, who is is the great uh, uh, architect of the Copenhagen understanding of quantum, said this. When Heisenberg showed his mentor Bohr, he had the ground cut from under his feet. Bohr argued that Heisenberg had made the unwarranted assumption that an electron is like a billiard ball and that it has a position and possesses a speed. These are classical notions, said Bohr, and do not make sense at the quantum level. The electron does not necessarily have an intrinsic position or speed or even a particular path. Rather, when we try to make measurements, quantum nature replies in a way we interpret using these familiar concepts. So what, another, to put this in another way, you remember our little quantum movie that we saw? It's really like this. I checked this out with Benjamin Schumacher. Now, Benjamin Schumacher is the brother of Will Schumacher on our faculty. He is a world-famous quantum physicist. In fact, you know that movie A Beautiful Mind about John Nash? He was John Nash's last doctoral student. John Nash studied with uh, uh, Einstein. Now, this, this is what I asked him, and he acknowledged that this was correct. I said, is this the understanding of the Heisenberg Uncertainty Principle? When you look for position, an electron exhibits characteristics of a particle, but when you look for momentum, it exhibits characteristics of a wave. And he said, that's exactly right. And when you look for momentum, and it exhibits characteristics of a wave, you can't get a location because it's not a particle at that point. See? Now, the point of all this is, as Niels Bohr was arguing, our language doesn't facilitate this kind of thinking. However, listen to what this article says. They went and they, well, it says here, Bohr had a view who be, he believed that the root of this problem is the structure of the languages we speak. European languages perfectly mirror the classical world of Newtonian physics. When we say the cat chases the mouse, we are dealing with well-defined objects, nouns, which are connected via verbs. Likewise, classical physics deals with objects that are well located in time and space which interact via forces and fields but if the world doesn't work that way our language does uh, doesn't work the way our language does advances are inevitably hindered now what they did is they went and they talked to some Algonquin and other Indian tribesmen for whom their for whom the language does not work this way Nouns connected by verbs. Now, listen to this example. Take, for example, the phrase into Monteney language, hippis Kabakoa iaguzet. In a 1729 dictionary, this was translated as the magician sings a sick man. According to Alan Ford, an expert in Algonquin languages, this deeply distorts the nature of the thinking process of the people. For the translator had tried to transform a verb-based concept into a European language dominated by nouns and object categories, rather than there being a medicine person who is doing something to a sick patient. There is an activity of singing, a process. In this worldview, songs are alive. Singing is going on. And within the process is a medicine man and a sick man. The worldview of Algonquin speakers is a flux and change of objects emerging and folding back into the flux of the world. There is not the same sense of fixed identity. Even a person's name will change during life. Now, at the end of this article, he says, The study of other types of languages opens us up to other worldviews to complementary ways of speaking about the cosmos. That's kind of the point, that language isn't railroad tracks. Hey, we can think about waves and particles and the simultaneity of this stuff. But it may be that a structure of a language facilitates or does not facilitate thinking. Now, I'm going to show you an example here. Take out your Greek New Testaments. And I want you to take a look at Ephesians 1.18. Okay. In 1.18, we have pephotis menus tus ophthalmus. The eyes of your hearts enlightened. It's an object. The eyes of your hearts enlightened. Now now the key is the next phrase: "ice tau idenai humas." In order that you may know, "idenai" is a perfect infinitive of "oida." In order that you may know, or possibly with the result that you know, what is "he elpis," the hope of your calling. Well, does "ice tau" plus the infinitive? Mean purpose or does it mean result? Now, this is the way our grammar books talk. They say it can be purpose or it can be result. Why? In German and in English and in other European languages, you have purpose clauses and you have result clauses. Very interestingly, in a concordance on this passage, they put down that it could be one or the other. Now, about 10 years ago, It occurred to me. What if it's both? What if it's both? Sort of a meaning like so as to. With so as to meaning in order that it may and with the result that it does. Now, why do we have difficulty with this concept? Because we don't have any parallel linguistic thing in English of something that is simultaneously purpose and result. Could I not think that idea? No, I could. But it was hard to think that idea. And I certainly didn't think that idea until 10 years ago or so. My language structure had actually facilitated or defacilitated my ability to do that. It's interesting when you check the grammars what you'll find on stuff like this. And you will find the way people will argue one way or the other, and they almost always argue kind of exclusively. <laughs> By the way, other passages like this. Are Ephesians 1, 12, and Romans 15, 16. Okay. Any questions on those two things? I'm going to pick up a couple of papers uh, and questions. Anything on this? Okay, good. I want to comment on a couple of papers from Chapter 4 before we move into 5. Josh is not here today, but his paper started out like this. <clears throat> Language facilitates perceptions and experiences, and thereby helps to create our world. This is the main thrust of today's reading. Well, no, it's not. The main thrust of the reading has to do with the essential negotiability between signifiers and conceptual signifieds, and the problem with labeling reference. Now, Silsley, where are you? Okay. Nice summary here. Now, just to save my voice, Dallas, would you please read this?
1: I apologize for the lengthy summary outline, but I needed to do so in order to wrap my mind around this stuff. Once I understood the ideas of signifiers and conceptual signifieds, I was able to grasp the importance of recognizing how fluid language can be. In learning Greek, one learns about the ambiguity that is sometimes present in the language which lends itself to different interpretations. This ambiguity is even written by authors intentionally. What you are positing here, however, is far beyond that concept. This is a completely different paradigm of thinking that we ought to use in reading texts and in dialogue with others. I have always understood that words derive meaning from other words in a sentence, but what we need to do is take that one step further and say that it is the relationships between multiple conceptual signifieds, which are brought about by signifiers, that actually give meaning to any given sentence. To go further, it is then the relationships between those groups of conceptual signifieds that bring meaning to an entire text, and so forth.
0: Yeah, very good, very good. So you've got, you, you got the signifier and conceptual signified, but and this is where we got to get off the Mark Wood train to oblivion. You, you can't get caught in thinking that there are these billiard ball units. It's the relationship. That was excellent. Justin in your summary i want to comment on this, this is an interesting mistake you said <laughs> you talked about the conceptual referent now i mean in one sense on a deep level that's true that reference are in a perceptual conceptual world but essentially the cheap quick dirty and nuclear answer is reference are out there concepts are in your mind signifiers are on the page please guys and gals do not use the term conceptual signifier that is a confusion of two things conceptual signified and signifier on the page. So, I just want to talk about that specifically. Okay? Um, Now, Oz, you're the guy with the green ribbon, right? Yeah, okay. Um, Here, this is what Ozzy says. I did find the communication model to be a bit odd, and do not feel you should be teaching this course. Now, I thought that was a little hard. I did not say that. No. no. <laughs> <laughs> I, did not say that. no. I did find the communication model to be a bit odd, but you are the most wonderful teacher I've ever had. Now that, that, thats what yeah, I wrote. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I did find the communications model to be a bit odd. It seemed to explain the process as having the sender and the receptor meet at the conceptual signified. No, you know, on the chart, those are up there, they're not meeting. You're you're trying to get the same stuff going on in the brain, but they never do correspond exactly right. Yeah. I mean, that was kind of an interesting way to put that, though. Dan another interesting bit of summary here words don't equal a thing I can't say Apple and then eat the word Apple right when I say Apple it invokes a mental image in my mind that represents what I perceive as Apple and it is only in context that I know what Apple is being referred to is it an Apple the fruit or is it in conjunction with other words to mean something like horse Apple I like the first, but the second is not for eating. Yeah, so again, that <laughs> horse-apple is not actually a, 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 you know, horse and apple separately. The thing's got to go together. That, that was excellent. Okay, Billy, my question is this. Woo, woo! (laughs) Okay, Borden and Mark Wood, Train to Oblivion. Does this make etymology completely useless? It seems that the development of certain meanings when referred to specific words is a gradual process. Even the word gay has changed over the years and still carries the original meanings depending on context. Well, that's interesting. Would words in the Bible be different? It seems that some of the words we find carry an underlying concept that has stayed the same while the usage has been applied to different specific reference. Now, probably the best example of this is in Act 17. Take your books for this. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I'll take
1: i I'm going to to
0: Okay. Basic stuff. Seth, therapoeo means to heal. Heal. Okay. Let's take a look. <laughs> this is Paul's uh, speech on the Areopagus. Neither by human hands. Let me see if I can put this under the camera here. Neither by chiron anthropino, human hands, therapoietai. They're talking about God. He's talking about God. Is he healed? ominous, lacking, needing, tinus something? No theropoieti, there, Billy, this gets at the point you were raising, is the old meaning. This is kind of like gay being used as happy or something like this. Theropoio meant to serve. To serve. So here, Paul is dredging up this old meaning when he's on Mars Hill, speaking to the f- sophisticated literary people in Athens. So you can go back and get some of these earlier meanings, but you're only going to know that by the context. See? You're only going to know that by the context. You cannot say every time you see theropoio it means to serve or every time it means to heal. The context is going to have to make that difference you know it is really interesting but let, let, let's try this once we may have those of you who had me for Greek we may have talked about this the word disinterested. Now, Justin what does that mean
1: to not be interested
0: not be interested how many of you agree now there's some people not raising their hands <laughs> no All right anybody disagree with that? Disinterested? All
1: right. uh, like, instead of just not be interested, but to um, to actively be repelled from interest, like instead of, I, like, not stative, you're just not interested, but just uninterested or disinterested? Disinter- I'm trying to find a difference between... Un- well,
0: that's the point. What's the difference between disinterested and uninterested? Now, Billy, <coughs> in Old dictionary terms, disinterested means not interested in the sense of not having a dog in the fight, impartial. So, to use an example I once heard on the BBC radio, a judge having his own son on trial before him must be disinterested, but he can never be uninterested in the outcome. Okay? Now, what's happened here is disinterested has begun to change meaning. Now it means uninterested, and you'll see things even in elementary education, the disinterested child. Ooh, little kids in first grade are impartial? No, doesn't mean that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, and you have to recognize that at this point so but there will be times. so if I see something about the disinterested child I know they mean uninterested but there will be times when somebody would say here's what we need in this dispute we need a disinterested party to come in and settle this now clearly that person means impartial exactly exactly so there you know the old meanings are around but you can only tell from the context Yeah, you can only tell from the context. J.B. So in the same sense, like, intensive purposes means intense and purposes? (laughs) Yeah, intense and purposes, right. (laughs) I asked my um, administrative assistant about that. I showed her the paper, and I said, "Do, do you think that this is right or wrong, the phrase intensive purposes? She said, I don't think this guy ought to be certified. And I said, that's a little harsh, you know. Uh, no. And, you know, her reply was very interesting. She said, you know, I don't think that's right, but I'm not sure quite what it should be. And, and so I think a lot of people are, are sort of at that stage on that. Right. <clears throat> so, uh, Billy, thanks a lot for that. That was good. Um, mark adrian a very interesting little observation listen to this he compares what we're doing to calculus where the limit approaches the limit but never actually reaches it so you can get an extremely close estimate for an answer for the problem with calculus which essentially keeps working the problem over and over eventually you get that reliable answer but if you don't know calculus it would be virtually impossible to solve the problem so, I hope hermeneutics will be like calculus. It is like that. You get close, but it's never kind of a 100% total fit that you could objectively determine or something like that. That's a very interesting uh, uh, way to handle that. I I like that a lot. Thanks a lot. Okay. Anything else then on Chapter 4 and Addendum 4b? Okay. So let's uh, begin a little bit then. With five, and I wanted to uh, bring in some stuff in chapter five that is uh, supplementary to what's in the book. <clears throat> there are about three or four big thoughts in this chapter, and uh, <clears throat> the business of the taxonomy of meaning, you know, with words being uh, broader or narrower in their scope. So you have things like this. This is my favorite example. Furniture. So you can have desk, table, chair. Yeah, exactly. And then here you can have a wing chair, and you can have a rocking chair, And so on. And here you can have an end table and a dining room table and so forth. Now, the further you go down the taxonomy, the more specific necessary components of meaning there have to be. And the higher you get, the fewer there are. In fact, what's great about this example, Seth, I'm going to pick on you again. What would you say? Would be the necessary components in furniture. This is really hard.
1: Uh, framework?
0: Okay, like a bridge.
1: Well, something that's more like a broad term. Okay,
0: framework, okay. fabric you know wood chairs Sure. Hmm. Wood. This is so amazing to try to define furniture how about the ladies who are guests today? Any definition of furniture? It's expensive. It's expensive. Used by humans. Yeah now I mean how about something like this um, useful for living and generally sits on the floor now this last part about sitting on the floor this is as opposed to let's say wall lamps and uh, uh, mirrors and ladies those kinds of things are called Accessories. Yes, none of the men would know that. Accessories, right. So, accessories are not furniture because in general accessories do not sit on the floor, although they may. But then you have things like hammocks and you're wondering about that sort of thing. That's exactly right. But it is unbelievably difficult to try to define things when you get up higher on the taxonomic scale like this when you go down, and then and here is a very important principle that everybody in class can come away with and that is this when you're doing synonyms you go up the taxonomic scale so if you need a synonym in a paragraph for desk you use furniture the synonym that you use in a paragraph for desk is not table it's not chair it's not bed see so you can say hey that's nice furniture you have in the room and the guy got a new bed that's fine but you can't call a bed a chair so you don't do you, you don't do tax you don't go across the taxonomy for synonyms you go up so a dog is an animal a dog is not a cat. A specific dog, like a poodle, the synonym is not dachshund, it's dog. So you, uh, so you go that way. Now, that's a very important principle because you go this way and get more general, and sometimes in context you've got to realize that's what the guy is doing. He's looking for synonyms, so he's got a more general word going now there's a whole bunch of things in the book that you know about how with this taxonomy that sometimes you know you have a word up here that also is lower in the taxonomy like this man man woman and then that gives you trouble but this happens in Greek also this happens in Greek also where you have ethnos meaning nation And you have Eudaius, meaning Jew, and you have Ethnos, meaning a Gentile. See? And this becomes a huge problem in Matthew 28. Go and make disciples of Panta, Ta, Ethne, all the nations. Are the Jews included? Depends where Matthew is on the taxonomic scale. See? Is it this? Or is it this? Yeah, Oz. Kind um, of related to that, would, and with a scale it like is, would Anthropus be on top and then Gunai and Annair? Yes. Yes, yes. yes. Anthropus is on top and Gunai and Annair is below. That is absolutely correct. Right. And so, remember my idea that you go up the scale for the synonym so if you say a man went out to sow seed and it's an anthropos well it's just sort of a he's going up for on air it doesn't mean that it's actually undifferentiated he's just doing it that way right yeah I mean it's just like you can have a everybody recognizes this as a standard poodle let's say a black you know large standard poodle and you say hey Nice-looking animal, isn't it? And you know, it's not a—it's not a right response to say that's not an animal; it's a poodle. You know, that's not right because you're allowed to go up the scale, right? Yeah. Oh, okay. Just waving your hand. All right. Now, um, the uh, there there were a couple of questions by people. About this business of illegitimate totality transfer. And I want Wood to notice this because illegitimate totality transfer is definitely one of the explosive liquid cars on the train to oblivion. Okay? So you're going to want to hitch this on to the train, okay? So in illegitimate totality transfer, you're saying that a particular, let's speak Velts here for a second, a particular signifier can denote a number of different conceptual signifies could be higher or lower on the taxonomic scale or at the same place illegitimate totality transfer says what you can't do is when you see an instance of a word like this you lump them all together to get a giant meaning Thus, listen to this from a paper that was written for me many years ago And this was about Abraham being called Tamim or Telios, perfect. From the discussion above, it is possible to conclude that the man who is righteous is Tamim. We may also conclude that when carried into the New Testament, the word Telios bears a full cargo of meaning. Now, this is a Mark Wood warning if I ever heard one. The us man has integrity before all because his confession coincides with his right relationship with God. The one who is us has the power necessary to reflect God's true character before men. So, in other words, he's lumping together now integrity and power and coming up with something like us perfect meaning powerful integrity. No, it ain't. Say, okay? Essentially, if you have uh, a word that has meanings in a couple of different areas, like run, meaning go quickly on your feet or get a rip in your hose, if she says, I got a run in my stocking, it doesn't mean it ripped quickly. you can't put these things together add in another thing for run run can mean control like he ran the company I got a run in my stocking does not mean I got a rip it happened quickly and it's controlling my thinking see you cannot uh, lump all these things together but this tends to happen in exegesis like this where people do what do they call wood? Word studies. And they do word studies and find all these different meanings. Then you have a full cargo of meaning coming into a particular passage. And then it starts leaking over to Andy Whedon right next to you there. And pretty soon you got sucking more people into this Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. That's it. What if uh, a term that you try to define has... It seems like it has more than one definition. Like Yeah, that's kind of what we're talking about. Well, well yeah, but I, if you're trying to, I don't know, uh, use a word, uh, like the Eskimos have like 12 words or something for snow. There's specific regions and layers. and Well, it's not just snow. It's a sticky snow that's kind of got a, a little bit. No, no, you're going backwards. We're not talking about a bunch of specifics for different kinds. We're talking about... Um, um, I'm making this up off the top of my head. Take snow, meaning it snows, it rains, you know, if precipitation comes down. Or it, <clears throat> he snowed him, meaning he kind of inundated him with information and overwhelmed him. Now, if I say to Dallas, don't snow me with that, I don't mean don't overwhelm me with information and throw precipitation on me. By throwing precipitation on me. See, you can't lump the things together in this way. So <clears throat> this is similar to that passage we looked at in Romans 8, where it says, I find a law, uh the, the law of sin and death, and the law of the spirit. Now, if law there means the rule of that, you can't, then add in the rule of the spirit through a legal code. See? Yeah. Or in Romans 7. I find this to be a law that when I seek to do good, evil is close at hand. Here's what law does not mean there. I find it to be a law, and it's related to the Decalogue. See? No, no, no. No. It means principle at that point. It doesn't mean decalogue. You can't lump the things together and get a giant meaning. Andy? I think maybe... I think you should move away from wood. Just a little
1: bit. <laughs> I can see it in your eye. <laughs> Going based off of what you were saying about purpose and result with that clause yeah. in the beginning, I think maybe that's what some of us are thinking. Can, is that
0: possible to do with different meanings of words no. individually? No. Right, and you know, I was just hypothesizing here that this could be the case, and, and here's my touch on it, here's why I was thinking that. Because there are such strong arguments for both ways, see, that people argue that yeah, passage makes sense this way, passage makes sense this way, then you're starting to think, well, you know what? Maybe there is actually a kind of a combo thing here that we don't recognize because our language doesn't facilitate our thinking about that. But I think that's different than having sort of discrete meanings and the context actually suggests one. Oh, here, here we go. Acts 1, 1. The first logon I wrote to you, O Theophilus. All right? The first The first discourse, the first account I wrote to you, O Theophilus. Now, logos means an account, but it could also mean a vocable or a word. If you go back to Luke chapter one, the first word is epidepere. Well, it doesn't mean the first account I wrote to you with the first word epideper. See? You you can't kind of do that where you're taking these discrete things and putting them together the one of them isn't even suggested by the context. And the reason I say this is important is because this is what exegetes tend to do to get really deep meanings. See? So you see this woo! if we look it comes with a full cargo of meaning. So you're kind of, you know, bringing in all this stuff. What I did before is There are two distinct lines of interpretation, and they both have strong arguments for them. I'm not just loading in extra stuff. Yeah. Okay, good. That's very good. Okay, good. We pick it up there uh, next time. That will be on Monday, regular time. And um, uh, get me the reaction papers for Chapter 6, a very important chapter. All right, thanks a lot.